0: This is Archive Atlanta, episode 163, Fox Theater. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey guys, happy Friday. This week I'm attempting to cover the history of an Atlanta icon, the Fox Theater. From its beginning as a mosque to opening as a premier movie theater, to its place as the catalyst of the city's historic preservation movement. There's a lot to talk about, so I'm going to try to touch on everything. The story of the fox begins with the land that it sits on. Once it was taken from the Muskogee, it was dispersed in land lotteries to mostly white men, a few women. I did an episode long ago about Richard Peters, but he owned most of what today is Midtown Atlanta. He even tried to make the first planned suburb, but it failed and Inman Park took the title. Today, the Fox is on the corner of Peachtree Street and Ponce de Leon, but in its earliest days of Atlanta, Ponce at this juncture was called Kimball Street. That's because the mansion of Hannibal Kimball stood there, um, and Samuel Inman's house was on the opposite corner too, but it was, you know, like I've also talked about in other episodes, it was a very grand residential street at the time. The Georgian Terrace, which still stands today, opened in 1911, and that was a big deal because it was the first major hotel to exist outside of the downtown core. Just two years later, the Ponce de Leon Apartments, also still there today, opened on the opposite corner, and this really solidifies this intersection as like a very high-end, you know, place to be. The Fox wouldn't have happened without the Shriners, so I do want to get into their history for a second. The organization dates to 1870 in New York City, and it started as a kind of subgroup of the Freemasons. If I got it right, one of the founders had attended a party given by an Arab diplomat. Um, That person had also visited Algiers and Cairo. So this is where the strong relation to Arabic culture, architecture, etc. comes in. The Atlanta chapter of the Shriners was organized in 1889. And at that time, only one Shriner group was allowed per state. So this was the first in Georgia. By 1890, there were 38 members and a building fund had been started full disclosure, I find fraternal organizations to be weird and yet very intriguing. I'm not a joiner in any sense of the word, but when you read about like the customs and traditions of these organizations, they're just, they really sound silly. But don't send me hate mail yet because my friend Liz points this out. You know, these groups of men especially, were extremely successful and powerful and contributed numerous important things to society. You know, the Shriners are known for their children's hospitals. Um, So I get it, you know, but when you read some of their stuff, it's like they'd serve camel milk and stuff at their dinners. You kind of have to laugh. By 1912, Atlanta's Yarub Shriners were meeting in the local Masonic temple, and they were quickly having space issues. So they were having to use Taft Hall to initiate new members. They said that, you know, they had thought about building their own building, but they decided against it because they didn't want to split from their Masonic brothers. And so the plan was to enlarge the current Masonic temple so that they had space. By 1916, the tune had changed, and so plans were set out to move out of the Masonic temple by 1918. This is also at the same time of World War One. I'm sure that affected some things. I found an article from 1919 that mentions the Shriners purchased a lot at East Baker and Ivy Streets for half a million dollars. I don't know if it fell through or plans changed. Because by 1921, uh, Potentate Harry Hines, and Potentate, if I'm saying that right, that was the name for their leadership position. So like the head of the Shriners, leased the University Club on Petrie Street for meeting space. By 1925, they're meeting at Taft Hall, and the leader at that time revitalized the idea for a Shriners' Mosque across from the Georgian Terrace. And they mention in this meeting that they purchased the lot, quote-unquote, years ago, and it was now owned debt-free. So the plans called for an auditorium that could hold 10,000 people, along with offices and storefronts, all in a Moorish design. A funding campaign is immediately launched to raise $1 million. Uh, and Asa Candler, actually, Asa Candler Jr. subscribes 10000 So they end up raising this money in two weeks. Like two weeks to raise $1 million in the 1920s is, is pretty wild. And the mosque groundbreaking takes place in November of 1925 with leaders Bowen and George Argard, um holding these old-fashioned plows, like major photo op standing on the site, you know, ready to dig up the dirt. They also hold a victory parade from downtown all the way up to this new location. Um, they had a victory ball at the Biltmore. Just like a whole week of, you know, exciting victory events to celebrate this groundbreaking. There were some hiccups, uh, mostly around cost. So the plans that they commissioned from the architecture firm of uh, Mary Alger and the Noir, and I always have a hard time saying his name, but it's M-A-R-Y-E, um, The Venoir led the design, actually. So he based his drawings off of postcards from the Middle East. Um, He's kind of like the junior member of the team. From from what I can understand, these designs put him up there into the principal. So there was domes. There was minarets. There was a large Arab courtyard. There was a grand entrance on ponds. It was like nothing Atlanta had ever seen. And so when the Shriners saw this, they were like, yes, this is what we need. And then they realized it's going to cost way more than a million dollars. By 1928, the committee separated the building into two distinct sections. So one was the auditorium, and then one was the storefronts that were going to line Petrie Street. After six months of negotiation, the auditorium was leased to the Fox Corporation. Sidebar of history, uh, William Fox founded the Fox Film Corporation in 1915. And the fox west coast theater chain in the 1920s so you know his very big name on the west coast at this point um he signed a 21 year lease so that brought in i think about three million dollars in funding that was going to cover the construction costs for this grand mosque the shriners did negotiate that they could use auditorium specific days of the year you know whenever they needed it but the rest of the year it would host movies and events Some architectural details were changed based on Fox's desires, so he thought that the main entrance should be on Peachtree, not on Ponce, and so that change was made. The cornerstone was laid in June of 1928, and construction wrapped up by Christmas of 1929, just two months after the stock market crash that would set off the Great Depression. In November of that year, the famous former vaudeville siblings Franchon and Marco visited Atlanta to prepare for their stage productions. Mrs. William Fox, who was in charge of decorating all the Fox theaters, apparently she had a train car of antiques sent to the city, um, getting ready to set it up. Enrico Lide was chosen as orchestra leader, so he's well known for marrying into the Candler family, honestly. But he was very big in the Atlanta music scene. Like all the you know well-known names of the city were chosen for this. The interior was opulent. The iconic blue ceiling with, you know, stars that actually were lit up by light bulbs behind. It was meant to mimic an Arabian night sky. The plaster walls were painted to look like stone. Uh, The stage was 80 feet long, which was four feet longer than the Roxy in New York City which, you know, if you know Atlanta, we always have to like put something in there, how we're bigger and better. Um, so that the Roxy was the largest theater in the US. So you know, saying that our stage was bigger was important. Um, the building was dotted with fountains, which is a very standard architectural detail inside an Islamic mosque. The Shriners Hall, which today is called the Egyptian Ballroom, uh, was designed with columns and winged serpents meant to mimic a pharaoh's throne room. It was, at the time, the largest ballroom in the entire city. The walkway from Petrie Street to the front doors uh, was meant to mimic an eastern bazaar, and then the iconic box office was solid brass. The men's restroom was inspired by a Turkish coffee room, and the ladies' restroom to mimic a harem room. The orchestra pit was the largest in the country, and consisted of a two-part elevator, so it could uh, go up and down. Inside the theater, the Mahler organ was set in place. Um, At that time, it was the largest organ in the world. And it was only one of 12 that the company had built for a theater because they normally did churches. In December, the Shriners held another large parade, a football game, a ball. Again, they love celebrating. And each member was invited for a sneak peek on December 23rd, one day before the opening to the general public. On a cold Christmas Eve of 1929, Atlanta lined up around the block for the Fox Theater's opening, with one show just after noon and the main event at 8 p.m. It began with the famous organ, then Enrico's orchestra, then the classic Mickey Mouse cartoon Steamboat Willie. There was performances, there was comedians. I think there was like acrobats, if I read that right. Um, And then they finally played the movie titled Salute. The Fox was, of course, segregated by race, as was custom and law, Black patrons entered through their own door on the pond side, used a separate ticket window, and then climbed a tall flight of stairs on the outside of the building to enter into a 188-seat gallery that was basically up against the ceiling. This space was segregated from the dress circle by a three-foot cement wall with no openings, so you were, like, trapped up there. This gallery also had its own set of bathrooms for Black patrons to use. Just one month after opening, the Fox Film Corporation was talking about going into receivership. So you have to remember, it's the Great Depression. By April, William Fox sold control of the theater chain. Um, By the following year, the Shriners were also struggling. So they lost a lot of members who couldn't pay their dues. And by November, the bank was attempting to foreclose on their building. In December of 1935, the Shriners sold the mosque to satisfy the $1.5 million mortgage, and it closed for just, I think, two months, but quickly reopened with new ownership, which, if I got this right, was Mosque, Inc., uh, and they owned it for the next several decades. So we have the 30s and the 40s. Uh, In 1946, Disney world-premiered Song of the South at the Fox. Uh, Walt Disney himself came to the showing, although the Black actors couldn't, at least not in the seats that were not up against the ceiling. In 1947, the Metropolitan Opera, which had been held in Atlanta since 1910, moved their spring season to the Fox. This was a really big deal, and the contract to use the Fox exclusively brought in all the high society for one week. So the stars were already staying at the Georgian Terrace, but this was like a big thing in Atlanta high society. So having it at the Fox, again, was a very prestigious win. In that same year, the Shriners, who had actually still been leasing this as a temple, moved to build their new headquarters somewhere else. So they end up purchasing the old Standard Club, which was a Jewish social club. They renovated it. They moved in. It sadly burned in 1964 or right before 64. And then in 64, they built a new mosque that still stands today on Ponce de Leon, so it's just past Ponce City Market. I'm sure you have seen it. It is, you know, it's still rare to have such a Islamic designed building in the city, so it's one of few. It would be the Metropolitan Opera that led to the desegregation of the Fox. So from the beginning, Black Atlanta was protesting the segregation of this theater. There were Black leaders like John Wesley Dobbs that wouldn't allow his daughters to attend places like this. Um, and if if you know that. His grandson, Maynard Jackson, um also had not attended this theater, I'm sure, because of his grandfather's feelings about it. Now the Fox had hired, so they had hired some African-American gate agents or ticket takers, um, some doormen. They had let a local music legend play the organ there, but like that was it. They still were not desegregating the seating. By 1961, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee began to protest the Metropolitan Opera because it performed in the segregated Fox Theater. There were several students who led, like, small two-person, you know, acts of resistance. So they would buy tickets. They would attempt to sit in the white section. And then months later, a deal was reached with Mayor Hartsfield and the opera to desegregate the event the following year. Now, this wasn't such a simple story uh, because the opera tickets were sold out years in advance. So while the 1962 show was technically desegregated, most Black Atlantans couldn't buy a ticket. Now this changed uh, for this reason. I, from what I've read, is like well, um, the new mayor Ivan Allen needed this to change, and so he pushed to build the Civic Center, which opened, and then the Met moved over there in 1969. By the early 60s, the Grand Organ, nicknamed Mighty Mo, had not been used in decades. The American Theater Organ Society put Joe Patton in charge of restoring the Fox's pipe organ, and this was something he did for free after his regular job, and it took him 10 months. During that time, he also began to just explore, like, you know, every nook and cranny of the theater— Patton was a bachelor. He lived in East Point. Uh, He worked as an electrical engineer selling x-ray equipment. So he just, you know, spent a lot of time there. Um, There's a really funny story. I read that in 1974, there was a rock concert where a streaker fell from the balcony into the orchestra pit and broke five keys and the organ stool, and it was Joe who fixed it. So in that same year, 74, the declining Fox Theater owner said, you know, I gotta sell this. The fox is gonna come down. It had been declining in membership. There was talks of selling the land to Southern Bell because they want to build their new headquarters. And so, you know, the owners just relaying this information, but everybody panicked. Uh, There's like an emergency meeting held. The Georgia Senate's Committee on Tourism was involved in organizing that. And they actually played the organ at the start of the meeting. Um, Students had lined up on the sidewalk. Not sure if that happened before or after the meeting. There's a lot of history here. I mean, I'm brushing over it, but there was public letters that had come in, former movie stars, former stage actors, um, regular Atlantans that paid bills to bell south they would write save the fox at the bottom of their checks uh georgia tech architecture professors were you know stating why it was important architects from across the nation chimed in it just there was a lot and so all of these efforts combined they put the fox theater officially listed on the national register of historic places in 74 so if you're in preservation. This is helpful. It's important. Um, you can use a lot of tax credits to rehabilitize it. But this all this whole showdown really comes to when Maynard Jackson, who was then mayor, had the demolition permit come across his desk. And he chooses not to sign it. He issues like an eight-month stay, or maybe it was 10 months. But basically time for everybody to figure it out. Now, the owner still really wanted to sell. Um, and so this is when Atlanta Landmarks, Inc., who is today the current owner, um, was formed. And then a massive donation campaign began. So raising money to purchase it. And they were successful as well. So after nine months of being closed, the Fox Theater opens again in 1975. Joe Patton, who led most of the reopening restoration, was hired as a technical director, an engineer, and generally the do-all person. This is in addition to his day job. In 1980, he moved into a 3,000-square-foot apartment at the Fox that was originally Shrine Executive Offices. Now, this whole battle was not really a quick win. So, you know, the group was able to raise down payment money, but they had to continuously raise money to make mortgage payments. And they did this with, like, selling T-shirts and selling bumper stickers. And it was very much a grassroots campaign that was funded by sure like large donations but also people sending in very small donations the mortgage was finally paid off in 1978 and then this enters the fox into what i call the rock concert phase lots of rock concerts like allman brothers springsteen um, and other just you know musical events and movies joe continued to live rent-free in the fox and he actually saved it from a fire in 1996. So they always say he saved the fox twice. Uh, He had heard the alarms, they woke him up, and he immediately called the fire department. So if you've been in Atlanta for a while, or you're from here, you may remember the story from 2010, when the fox was attempting to evict Joe. At this point, he's 84 years old. Um, He had essentially dedicated his life to the theater. So this was national news. From the fox perspective, he was elderly Um, He wasn't doing super well health wise. So, you know, there was concern that he shouldn't be living there. He should be living in like assisted living. Patton sued for his right to remain in the apartment and he won and he would live there until he died in 2016. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's Fox Theater. Of course, it is an icon on Patriot Street today. Um, I have been there to see comedians and Broadway plays um, and kid stuff. And, you know, I'm sure you have your own stories. I would love to hear your connection with the Fox. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. You can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.